All right, welcome everybody to the second session of Ask Me Anything. Um, this time it was a little more unique because instead of a flow of questions coming in, I had a massive number of questions to all look at at once. So I'm going to do this a little differently and dive right in to a subject that ties together a lot of questions and, and probably will help answer a lot of questions for a lot of you and help you to assess other people's claims as well. As you know, that's one of the big things I'm trying to accomplish is it's, it's really easy to come up with all these claims and all these hypotheses and start making recommendations off of them without understanding the potential consequences. And that's because, and again, I haven't had a chance to fully elaborate on this, but I don't, I can justifiably say there is no science of health that exists. And I think it's also, I can be pretty confident that there's no science of diet either when in relationship to health or performance for that matter. These as established sciences, these subjects do not exist. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't get PhDs or they may be working in a scientific paradigm in these fields. So hence, that's probably how they may have gotten PhDs or whatever and whatnot. But I would argue their PhDs don't have certain credibility. And, and I'm, I'm not in any way looking down upon their work or anything. Their, their work is actually part of the scientific process. We're in the beginning stages when there's a lot of fact collection and then at some point, there has to be a hypothesis that puts all of the facts together. And like I said, that's the work I've been trying to do. And without that one framework to explain the vast majority of all this information, of all these, all these facts that have been uncovered and that a lot of PhD work has been done on to uncover, without that under, undergirding support system, there's absolutely no way that you can assess anybody's claims or say that anybody's hypothesis is any worse or any better than anybody else's. And I've been guilty of that in the past, and that's what made me really think about what science is uh, this summer, particularly when I was unable to walk for so long and was stuck in bed. So in that vein, we're going to kind of start with the foundational piece of what it is that I base everything off of. And you'll see how powerful this is as we go through this because we're going to cover everything from mitochondrial health to dinitrophenyl, DNP, 2,4-dinitrophenyl in particular, and metformin and cannabis, specifically THC, and cannabinoids. Believe it or not, those are all exactly the same subject. And their interplay with mitochondria can tell us a lot about what we can expect and what we should be fearful of and what we shouldn't be fearful of. So let's there let's start with there's the question of and I, I just want to do the mitochondria a touch on the health of mitochondria a little bit because there's the mitochondria colony that lives within the cell. As everybody knows, it's not like it's not one mitochondria. There's several mitochondria per cell. And this colony can 
either fuse, so two mitochondria can get close enough and they can fuse together and form one bigger mitochondria. And it turns out when they when they do fuse like that, they become more efficient. The efficiency goes up. Now, they could also, bigger ones or medium-sized ones can split apart, and that's called fission. So one bigger mitochondria can break up into two smaller ones. Now, when that happens, it goes to lower efficiency. Obviously, that would make sense, right? So, but also, in effect, higher power output. The cell can generate more ATP at that point than it could before. Whereas when they smash together, it can generate maybe less ATP, but it can do it with more efficiency. So those are the two extremes we're looking at. And I said before that you could look at, in previous podcast, one way to tell tissue health is to look at the ratio of surface area to volume of mitochondria. And somebody asked a really good question, which was, well, if that's the case, and running increases mitochondrial, mitochondria count, then running should be the ultimate thing for health. And my response to that was, well, almost never. And that seems counterintuitive, but health isn't about efficiency and it's not about complete maximum uh, work possible, which is what happens when you get several smaller mitochondria. So it's, it's not about those two extremes. It's actually about maximum power output. And power output is work over time. So it's how much work can the mitochondria deliver in an amount of time. And that usually sits almost right at the 50% efficiency mark. And that, almost, that doesn't matter if you're talking about gasoline engines, any kind of internal combustion engine. It's at about the 50% mark where you get maximum power, but you're only at about 50% efficiency. The human body is there as well. It's, that's about its sweet spot. If you become too efficient, then the system cannot, can no longer repair itself. Uh, it turns out it's using kind of minimal resources just for energy production. And if you go the in- other way, it becomes too inefficient then what happens is you start getting a a buildup of a lot of trash and garbage it can't get cleared out fast enough and you start to degrade the entire cell including the mitochondria so there's a sweet spot in the middle where everything balances out and it's been kind of a spare time project but you should looking at kind of the rate of byproducts that occur, the damage that can occur within the mitochondria, if there's too much energy or too little energy going through, you should be able to put all those into place and come up with a a differential equation or a set of differential equations at this point. And then you could actually try to maximize that system. And at that point, and only at that point, could we say what the best ratio of mitochondria number to sizes within a cell and at that and if we can find that number it's it's going to be different for each tissue because each tissue has different metabolic needs which means there might be a slight shift to more efficiency or there might be a slight shift to less efficiency depending on the the tissue 
and I think you could parameterize this for all tissues in the body and it would be really if, if we have that equation and believe it's it's a side project because it's venturing into statistical like uh, non-equilibrium statistical mechanics which is still a very undeveloped topic especially in biological systems so that hence the reason it's it's a side project because I would have to do more than likely I would either have to do some groundbreaking work or wait for somebody to do some groundbreaking work so that these equations could that you could derive these equations and make sense of them but anyway so that's the key so running actually does really increase mitochondria colony count but unfortunately it keeps making it less and less efficient and that could be the reason that long distance runners start to have cardiac rhythm problems and this is well documented to it's well documented to the point that runners often suggest like marathon runners and ultra endurance runners they often recommend that you don't go see your doctor about heart conditions because you will be labeled as having a heart condition and they don't think it is one they're like well of course running's better for you it's natural Therefore, any consequences of running, we, we shouldn't say are a problem. But it is a problem, and it's that incredible move towards high inefficiency that's starting to cause rhythmic problems in how the cells can regulate themselves. And, that, and like I said, in, it's in heart patients particular, which is the only place they use this ratio. And they do find if the surface area ratio to volume gets way too high, then there do start there does start to be problems in the heart cells so so it, it's not it's not a simple well we just need to get as many many mitochondria as possible it's it's a balancing act and in general it seems that balancing act is best achieved through resistance training and at this stage in my life, actually my whole life, I, I have no particular penchant for any type of exercise. Like I, one of my probably most serene and happiest periods of my life is when I was out cycling 60 miles a day. You know, I loved being out on the bicycle and I still do love being out on the bicycle. Although with my leg, I haven't been able, I, who knows when I'll be able to get back on the bicycle, maybe this summer, but you know, I don't take the long grand tours that I used to. Uh, so, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm letting research guide my recommendations, not the other way. Now, that's not to go out saying if you want to be a runner, then there's things you can do to try to mitigate some of these these issues. A, it will make you healthier, especially if you ever stop running and while you're running. And B, it will actually increase your performance. So, so these are all interrelated. So that kind of covers the topic of the mitochondria colony. There's some optimal in there. At the moment, that seems to be reached when we resistance train. And that doesn't mean growing muscles as big as possible. It just means getting in, resistance training, going to failure, not necessarily trying to build massive amounts of muscle. That seems to give us an optimal ratio. Uh, running, like I said, throws it too far in one direction and well, as you get sick, it gets too it gets thrown too far in the efficiency direction. Now, this ties in quite a bit with 
a lot of chemicals that were asked about in this talk. And a lot of people have asked about DNP, and that was actually the redacted chapter in the nicotine book. I know a lot more about DNP now that I can be confident about talking about it. And when I wrote the book, I knew enough to be pretty confident, but I wasn't 100% sure. So I pulled that chapter out of the book. I didn't want to make recommendations to do anything that could potentially hurt somebody, especially in the long term. And I, I just really didn't fully grasp the niceties of, of dinitrophenol at the time. And I'm not going to go into huge detail, but I'll give the basics that kind of give an idea of what DNP does, which is actually pretty spectacular. And other researchers have, have started to look into this too, and they, they do see the benefits. So what DNP does is it most heavily, so it, it penetrates into the mitochondria. And there it kind of takes the place of normally when we get to the end of the electron transport change, we're transporting protons across the mitochondria and protons in the form of phosphorus basically. And those are then being reattached to ADP, adenosine diphosphate, to make ATP, adenosine triphosphate, to then go power the machinery of the cell, whatever that cell might happen to be doing. So it's this proton transport that is the last step of creating ATP and it's obviously a very important step. Now part of part of what happens is that that's happens around complex 3 complex 4. So if too much energy is coming into the cell, it cannot transport protons quickly enough out of the cell to accommodate the energy coming in. And there's rate limiting mechanisms that exist but they can still be driven pretty strongly in the direction of too much energy coming in and that's where we get what we call electron leakage and that happens in complex one that's the first stage it's highly associated with pyruvate coming into the cell and pyruvate is if you don't know like glucose basically comes in the ring gets opened up into a straight molecule the straight molecule gets broken up into two pyruvates and then those can be transported into the mitochondria now, if too much pyruvate's coming in, it actually it starts to saturate that pathway and there's too much electron production, can't get protons out fast enough, and then those electrons start to oxidize and that's where we get the vast majority of oxidative damage is done in the mitochondria. That's why antioxidants, taking antioxidants, do nothing to mitigate oxidative damage because that damage is happening in an area that those antioxidants can never get to. I mean, so that that's what basically happens when we're driving too much energy into the cell. And carbohydrates turn out to be a very powerful driver of energy flux into the mitochondria. So powerful it cannot handle the flow. And that's a really big issue. It's, it's driven really strong and it just starts to destroy mitochondria. Now, DNP, interestingly, helps by absorbing protons quickly enough through that gradient that it absorbs them and throws off the energy as heat. So ATP is not generated. So there, the ADP buildup starts to occur and ATP cannot be formed out of it because 
and and this is kind of the critical case because the DNP is there sucking up the protons, throwing off the energy as heat, and it actually gives those protons to um, NAD minus to er, NAD turns it into NADH plus. And I'm not going to pronounce all the chemical names just probably because I'll get them wrong. And then that goes back into feeding the energy production, the electron chain. So DNP kind of takes the place of moving the proton to ADP, switching out the energy, getting the ATP. It takes the place of that and just throws off the excess energy as heat. So this is, if you're eating carbohydrates, this is actually supplementing with a small amount of DNP will, can prevent leakage in the electron transport chain because it can handle almost all the energy coming through. And in small doses, this has been seen as highly beneficial, and there's studies now being done on it. And it, it's even protective in some instances. And we can see why this is. So what we've essentially done is allowed the machinery of the mitochondria to work at its full capacity all the time without damage. Now this is a huge, huge advantage for the mitochondria. It actually gives them a bigger window of energy that can come in without damage. Like this is super important. So it actually opens up the capacity of the mitochondria to take in energy and still have a normal outflux of ATP generation without damage in between. Like this is incredibly powerful and we they've tried other uh they're called phospholytic decouplers they've tried other phospholytic decouplers and none of them seem to work as well as dnp i mean not even close this is amazing this, this stuff is amazing so in small dosages it actually is incredibly beneficial to cells now if you take a little bit more then we then we start to run into a situation, well, if you take too much, we run into a situation where it turns out the DNP can eat up all of the protons coming out of the energy production within the mitochondria. Now, this is a big problem because now no ATP is generated. There's a buildup of ADP, and it turns out two ADPs can combine to make an ATP and an AMP. That's adenosine monophosphate. Now, this adenosine monophosphate is an incredibly important chemical within the cell. It, it almost can never be recycled back to ADP and ATP. At the point of AMP, it's usually broken down and excreted from the cell. So a, AMP is almost like an end product that starts to signal a lot of stuff in the cell. And we'll, we'll come back to AMP and its degradation and exercise because it leads us to a very important supplementation that needs to happen for people who exercise. And I'll talk about that in a second. But so AMP, AMP starts to build up within the cell. Well, this activates something probably a lot of you have heard of AMPK. That's adenosine monophosphate kinase. What that does in ascension, in in essence, is it's a trigger to turn off all anabolic processes. So that means the formation of new proteins, that means repair of the cell, that means growth. 
So if AMP is elevated, AMPK is active, you actually cut off growth signals. So you can't gain more muscle, you can't get satellite cell differentiation, uh, you, can't, you can't form new fatty acids, and that one's a bonus, and it triggers catabolic processes. So that's where we hear of AMP-activated autophagy, which autophagy is where organelles within the cell uh, lysosomes start to break down any junk that builds up. So that's another advantage of DNP. If you take enough, you elevate AMP levels and you start to trigger all this cleanup. At the same time, you've stunted all growth. And th this will be important as we move along. But, a but DNP does something even a little more special because of how it sucks up all those protons. So what happens is essentially because of this proton, we can just call it proton capture if you want. So this proton capture actually causes a backup of pyruvate trying to get into the mitochondria. Now this is mitigated by pyruvate and, and we have a vastly new understanding of lactate that didn't exist even 20 years ago. And lactase seems to not be the thing that limits muscle contraction or even contributes to fatigue. It's actually the thing that allows us to move past fatigue in most instances because the pyruvate shuttle into the mitochondria actually gets bogged down. But pyruvate can be transformed into lactate and part of that process develops some ATPs that can then be used for the system. So you get a little bit of ATP generation, not much. And then lactate can actually move across the mitochondrial membrane much easier. It can diffuse into it, and then it can actually go through a metabolic step and be re-entered into the Krebs cycle and start to produce energy through the pyruvate pathway again. So lactate becomes very important. So we, so we get some anaerobic energy production and then we can have lactate moving into the mitochondria to still give us some oxidative energy production. And so DNP starts to push this process. So all of a sudden we went from a cell that was just burning carbohydrates um, because we're driving it with so much carbohydrate. And I'm talking about the average person in the average diet. And this is causing a lot of damage in the mitochondria. We introduce a little bit of DNP and the cell can now suck up all that all that carbohydrate and stay healthy and not do damage within itself because it can handle the excess energy load. Now we add a little bit more DNP and we're actually in a situation where the cell, the mitochondria can't get in enough fuel through pyruvate. So we activated an anaerobic pathway that then got us more fuel from lactate. So now we're burning on all cylinders, right? We've got oxidative glucose metabolism, essentially. We've got anaerobic glucose metabolism going on. Well, with enough DNP, the AMP, the adenosine monophosphate, we, we still can't create enough ATP for the cell. And this is the really amazing thing about DNP, I think, and it's the only chemical we know of that can do this. So you've got oxidative glucose burning you've got anaerobic glucose burning if AMPK stays elevated long enough through this process as the other pathways become saturated then all of a sudden 
fatty acids start to get broken down and also in, in, end up into the Krebs cycle. So you're now getting massive energy production and you're not damaging the mitochondria in the process. This is, to me, an amazing fluke of metabolism in the body and a chemical affecting it in this way. And that's why we, we start to see when you look at in studies of people taking DNP and animals, humans, I mean, we actually have a lot of studies on this stuff. It, it turns out a lot of the in excess energy produced in the form of heat is coming from fat. And that's because the other two pathways, the anaerobic pathway is limited. The normal carbohydrate pathway has become saturated. So now to make up for all of the energy, we start to mobilize a lot of fatty acids, which can pump out a lot of protons. And then we can overcome all of the DMP we've taken and start to produce ATP again. And it's still a struggle. So we're always left. So with DNP in the system, enough DNP, you're left in the situation where the mitochondria, and I've not been able to find any other physiological mechanism that allows this to happen, where the, the cell is getting energy from both carbohydrate oxidation, or from all three, carbohydrate oxidation, anaerobic glucose fermentation, and fatty acid oxidation all at the same time. Now you can imagine why this can skyrocket body temperature. Uh, some people in some reports of people near death or in trying to recover from DNP overdose, there are a few case studies. You, we're looking at body temperatures can go to 106 degrees. And you know, these people essentially came in brain dead. And the unfortunate thing with DNP is it will eventually leave your system. The problem is if you take too much, there is no antidote. This is working at the most intimate level of your metabolism through which there's nothing we know of to stop the excess energy production. We just, we don't know what to do. Best case scenario, maybe you could be in an ice, ice bath that can control your temperature enough that you don't go into some sort of brain death. But with all that being said, those are, those are high dosages of DNP, and those are dosages that would normally be impl uh, implemented by, say, bodybuilders or physique athletes, uh, people in those professions that are really trying to get rid of the last of their body fat. And it just skyrockets the metabolism, and it skyrockets the metabolism independent of thyroid hormone or anything else. Your body is starving for energy, it appears to be starving for energy and it just keeps shuttling more and more fuel into the cell through the mitochondria and it still just can't keep up. So you can imagine you can lose massive amounts of body fat. Now, something that I don't talk about from years past, like I was 19, 20, maybe 21, I tried DNP. Now, I... I don't recommend this to people just for the fact that you could have an over-responsive reaction, which means the first dose that you take is the last dose of anything you'll ever take because you'll die. So you have to be of a pretty special mindset to take levels that high. And I was, of course, of that mindset. Young, imagined I was invincible. It's like, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And within a week's time... 
I lost so much body fat, particularly from my face, that I remember walking through a mall, looking in the mirror. A, a mirror was in a store, and I, I looked into the store. The mirror was on the other side of a window, and I saw somebody looking back at me that I did not recognize. And it was me, it was my reflection in the mirror on the other side of the window. I mean, the transformation was amazing. Now, the downside was terrible. I felt wretched. I couldn't think. I was incredibly lethargic. Remember, you don't have enough ATP production to barely keep the cell alive. So now you're trying to go out for walks. You're trying to work. It's not going to happen. Forget about the gym. About the most you can muster at the gym is get on the treadmill for maybe five minutes if you're lucky. It was very, and my body temperature was really high. I had, I mean, I was sweating all the time. Um, I don't really recommend this. And obviously this was before I understood diet and everything. And I was kind of desperate because I tried everything and I couldn't get rid of body fat. Um, so this was a pure desperation move on my part because I just could not using the low fat, you know, chicken and rice type of diet. I just could not lose weight no matter what I did. And so this was a, a moment of desperation. And I had friends who had uh, found DNP that they could order on the internet. And so they were going to try it. I figured, why not? And I was amazed. I, I would never do it again, though. It was a totally miserable experience. I still remember in, in the, the bucket list, if you remember, one of the rules was never trust a fart as you get older. If you're on DNP, never trust a fart. I can tell you that absolutely for sure. Uh, on the bonus, on the plus side though, DNP is actually used as an insecticide and you sweat it out like crazy. So in Florida in the middle of summer, it was almost eerie because I could go outside at night with overhead lights shining down and you could see the bugs. You know, if you've been in Florida in the summer when it's humid, you can see the bugs in the lights. They're like everywhere at night. And literally as I walked, there was this empty zone of bugs. Bugs would not get close to me. It was the only period of time that one week in Florida when I had no mosquito attacks whatsoever. But by the same token, nobody wanted to get next to me at that point. I mean, it, it, it's a pretty miserable experience. But, uh, you know, what, 20 years later, 25 years later, I understand what was going on inside my body. And actually what was going on inside my body wasn't a bad thing at all. The danger comes in not understanding how much to take, taking too much, uh, and having that overreaction. And the problem is you just don't know if you're going to have that extreme reaction until you do it. And that's why I, even friends of mine who are you know really adamant about training, I always say, like, don't do it. Like, there's better ways to lose body fat. Don't do it. Now, I've since changed my tune because they they have now done several studies on low dose DNP, and there have been no con contraindications like somebody dying, like none of those things have happened, and they've seen cells become healthier. So this was the redacted chapter in Nicotine Declassified. It was about DNP potential dosages you could use with 
nicotine and the interplay of nicotine and DNP. So if you're on DNP, once adenosine monophosphate kinase, the AMPK, once it's activated, like everything is shut down. You're not you're not uh, you're not differentiating new tissue you're not going to build muscle uh, your body's actually not going to repair things as effectively uh, ampk is a, an incredibly important signaler and it starts down in the mitochondria so this is a, a really important signal molecule and one of the, and another thing that it does is it shuts down the mTOR pathway so that's that's part of the pathway that again allows for growth and differentiation and there's some evidence that there, that some AMPK, like artificially driven activation of AMPK through chemicals like DNP, can be offset a little bit by something that can stimulate mTOR, which nicotine does exceptionally well. So there might have been, there might be a little bit of an interesting interplay between those two chemicals. And that chapter was speculative, which was another reason I was smart to redact it. But there could be an interplay there that's very beneficial and that could be incredibly therapeutic to people who are sick. So this gives you an idea of of DNP. Like I said, DNP is is a very special molecule. Like I said, I've never seen and I have dug and dug and dug for anything that can allow the cell to get energy from all from both substrates at once so fat and carbohydrates and anaerobic energy production and it's incredibly rare the window for that to happen naturally i mean you're talking in the order of fractions of seconds that that overlap is very small or maybe a second so it really doesn't happen if you're on dnp it's constantly happening for as long as you're on the dnp now I want to contrast that so that hopefully answers everybody's questions about DNP there were quite a few questions and one of the most intriguing questions was well why can't I just take DNP and eat tacos or whatever it was and it seems like an absurd question but it's questions like that that actually drive really important questions really important subsequent questions because you know think about it like why can't you do that why is that not okay and you can't answer that question until you understand what DNP is doing at its most intimate level within the cell. So it, it, it's actually a hard question to answer. Why can't you do that? Well, my guess is eventually that constant energy deprivation and that constant heat buildup is going to start to damage your body. It's not going to allow repair processes to happen and you'll you will just eventually break down and any damage that you might have in the mitochondria it it can't be repaired while you're on dnp while ampk is activated there's no repair processes going on your mitochondria will not get better you're in a frozen state of sickness but you've you have a cessation of any more damage so mitochondria aren't going to get more sick but they're not going to get better and now you have this constant elevated temperature to deal with, which does have signaling consequences. And it, it could lead to the degradation of muscle tissue over a long time, uh, could lead to the degradation of other important structures like connective tissue. 
And this is where I get into issue with people talking about heat shock proteins. Because there's a couple heat shock proteins that do positive things. And then there's another dozen heat shock proteins that do a lot of negative things. And you don't get to pick and choose which ones you activate. Your body temperature goes over a certain level, they just all get activated. Um, And, and, you know, this is kind of something important to consider. You can't just say, well, we're going to focus on heat shock proteins and work out and then you get in the sauna and you activate the heat shock proteins and you get super quick recovery. Uh, Yeah, that, that just doesn't seem to happen. Even in rodent studies, there's a huge caveat on the on what's being referenced in those mice being heated after training and their recovery there are massive caveats in that and it's unlikely that you could get the same result in higher mammals period let alone humans and in humans the results are much less promising uh, to the point of decreasing performance and causing what's the right right word improper recovery so you can appear recovered from metabolic markers, but in fact, what's happened is the recovery process has just been shut off without doing full recovery. So it looks like you recovered faster because the markers of recovery are have gone. They've disappeared. The problem is the recovery process just got shut off. It didn't finish the repairs. So it looks like you recovered faster metabolically when in fact you just stopped halfway through the reparations. Um, And I don't mean reparations as it's sometimes used in the political context at the moment. So that's, that's why you can tell I have a very different perspective on all of this because I have a different understanding of how the body works and that's why I'm sometimes dismissive of a lot of things that people don't think I should be dismissive of when I think absolutely I should be dismissive of them because they do not fit within our current understand well of the current body of facts from which I've built a hypothesis what they're saying does not fit with that hypothesis in the way that they claim it does fit within the hypothesis, but it says what it does exactly, which is some good, some bad. So my, my framework accommodates that. Their framework is, oh my gosh, this is just all good. We need to do this. You know, the, my framework does not accommodate that claim at all. It, it can't, and they can't accommodate that claim. So that's why I'm dismissive of a lot of things, and that's why I tend to talk a lot less about all this minutia that's floating around constantly because it, it really is minutiae. It, it doesn't matter. And we'll, we'll get into that probably. I, there's some other set of questions that, to answer about toxins in the environment and things like that. So we'll get into that later. But now I want to move on. We kind of understand mitochondria health a little bit. You know, this is overview. We understand how DNP works a little bit. Brief, basic overview. Now I want to talk about metformin because there's people taking it for longevity. There's several questions on it. People are worried about it. I made comments about anti-diabetic drugs leading to soft tissue cancers that used to never exist. And I need to clarify that statement as well. So then the question is, how does metformin do what it does? So when I was talking about anti-diabetic drugs, Hopefully I didn't mention mention metformin because I 
could have possibly because I was talking so fast. But I never, in anti-diabetic drugs, even though metformin is one of the primary ones, that's not what I'm talking about because metformin does not act by allowing, by increasing glucose absorption into cells directly. So we do have some anti-diabetic drugs that can increase GLUT4 activation and can allow more and increase insulin sensitivity um, in tissue to then increase GLUT4 translocation and gets more sugar into the cell and it ends there. So more sugar is being pushed into the cell where it's a driving force into the mitochondria, which then caused the mitochondria to suffer even more damage. And that's why my theory of, you know, pushing energy through the mitochondria causes disease and that anti-diabetic drugs that allow more glucose to be pushed through the mitochondria should cause rare cancers in tissues that almost never get cancer. And that's skeletal muscle tissue and body fat. And the reason those tissues never get cancer is they're two of the only tissues that can shut off glucose absorption. That's why they're loaded. They're the primary source of GLUT4. Those are the glucose transporter proteins. They're the primary source of GLUT4 expression in the body body fat and skeletal muscle tissue and that is because those are two very important tissues for survival one is an energy supply and the other is our ability to move through the environment we need both of those so naturally insulin resistance is those two tissues have stopped accepting glucose they're trying to preserve their functionality and by driving more glucose into them with normal anti-diabetic drugs you continue the damage and when mitochondria get damaged enough this is a whole nother process that's when they trigger the the cancer cascade so my theory about how the body works and all of this led me to a prediction and my prediction was these drugs should be causing the, these types of cancers and unfortunately nobody's done that direct study so the next thing i had to do was find incidences of these rare types of cancer lipomas is one of them and see has their incident gone up since the use of diabetes medication has gone up, and has it correlated with certain diabetes medication and it turns out it has we have seen a rise in these tumors that should not exist these are completely human generated diseases so the theory led to a prediction that has evidence to support that prediction and allows us and points us and, and that's the really important thing of what i said this this isn't just const constructed to accommodate what we know this is constructed to explain how the body works which can lead us to predictions to then go test so right there there's a test of of my theory that can be done and there's evidence to support that i could be right which gives us the confidence that we should do this we should do this experiment to find out we should collect this data now that, now obviously this is very different than just looking at data and saying oh well when people cut calories they lost weight and these things happen therefore this solves everything that's the top down theory it's they're very shitty i'm trying to go bottom up and the bottom up theories are the ones that make predictions and make us look at everything potentially differently uh, and that's what health is missing 
and health science and diet science. And without that piece, then we can never really move forward. So we've just gotten into that. I kind of went off on a tangent there. So the question is, how does metformin work? This stuff seems amazing and it seems to have many contradictory properties. One of which, which is, which is, I mean, actually really surprising is, you know, you take metformin and it does decrease blood glucose levels. Um, it seems to, it stops mitochondrial damage. It stops uh, the formation of superoxides, which is our our oxidants that are destroying mitochondria. It, it does all these things, and yet it doesn't increase insulin sensitivity. Um, there, there's a lot of things it doesn't do. But, and even you can give it to animals that are only meat eaters, say, and they do this a lot of fish because there's there's some fish that only eat meat, essentially. They eat other fish. And if you give them carbohydrates, they get really sick. Well, you can give metformin to these fish and feed them carbohydrates and everything's fine. And this is just really, should be really weird. So we need to kind of look down into the details to see what it is metformin could possibly be doing. And one of the things we know it does is it raises AMPK. And we just had a whole discussion of what that means. So when metformin's around, it raises AMPK and the thought was that it specifically raised AMPK through some sort of signaling mechanism and AMPK rises so then we start to get you know a little bit more energy flux through the cell you know all of our growth processes are turned off the cell thinks it's starving and there's some problems with thinking that that metformin only activates, is only activated, is only useful by activating AMPK. So, because one of the things we we see is that the cells actually stop burning carbohydrates. So even though AMPK went down, which would which would cause an influx of pyruvate, let's say, or glucose, to try to make up that energy reserve. That's not what happens. The glucose actually gets shuttled to anaerobic burning. And they've showed this in several studies. When you take metformin, a lot of the glucose in the cells is no longer burned within the mitochondria. It's burned through anaerobic processes, which create a lot of lactate. And the lactate circulates through the system. We can measure lactate levels go up. We can tell that carbohydrates are now almost being burned fully through anaerobic processes in cells. So the question is, you know, what's going on here? And that's what can lead to lactoacidosis. Uh, This could become a runaway process. And that the runaway process happens if the mitochondria are so damaged that they can't get fatty acids in to then start to start to make more energy for ATP. And those led to the clue and helped them finally figure out what metformin does. And what it does is it actually penetrates into the mitochondria. And once inside, it deactivates what's called complex one of the electron transport chain. So if you deactivate complex one, you've essentially shut off the mitochondria's ability to transport pyruvate into the mitochondria for energy. Now, if you 
if you're on a carb-based diet or you are already somewhat like very sick from a carb-based diet, so the World Health Organization recommendations for a diet will put you in that situation. So it's not just a shitty American diet if you're, if you're on what's recommended as a healthy diet by government organizations then you've got really damaged mitochondria and when you if they're so damaged that fat cannot enter the mitochondria and you take metformin it's where you get this lactoacidosis and you could potentially die for everybody else though if you're not at that stage metformin has shut down complex one so of course we show that it creates much less oxidation issues so it cut off the one fuel that can come in so fast that it starts to destroy the mitochondria with too much energy production. That's the electron linkage. So it just turns that off. And it doesn't turn it off completely. It still runs, but it, it can no longer keep up with the energy demands of the cell. So AMP rises just like in the case of DNP. And that's what activates the AMPK. So I know I'm throwing all these terms at you, but basically what happens is once you shut off complex one, once you shut off the, the mitochondria's ability to absorb that pyruvate, now you've put the cell into an energy deficit. It's not making ATP fast enough. And so it shuttles all of that glucose into anaerobic burning and starts to try to keep up with ATP generation. And eventually, you know, that still does not make up for AMP is still being produced at too high of a rate. So with AMP activated, we now get a lot of fatty acid oxidation. So the mitochondria are now forced to start to bring fatty acids in and break them apart and metabolize those for energy. So it's a really interesting kind of scenario that's similar to DNP, but DNP works by allowing all the fuel that's there to come in and disperses the energy appropriately so all the machinery can always work. Metformin takes the opposite approach and metformin just says, no, we're not going to burn glucose anymore here in the mitochondria. We're just shutting that down. And for all intents and purposes, that does obviously that's obviously going to stop oxidative damage within the mitochondria because your source of that oxidative damage has been cut off. So you kind of closed the valve, which is good. And fat is naturally regulated. There's a regulation process in how the fatty acid chains need to be broken apart to enter into the Krebs cycle. And that actually is its own rate limiter so that you can't get the kind of electron leakage that you could, can get. And that also uses different transport agents into the mitochondria, and it can also use a, a different complex. So it's not effective by shutting off complex one. Complex one is most crucial for transporting carbohydrates via pyruvate into the mitochondria. And it, it can get some lactate into the mitochondria as well for energy production, but we start to mobilize a lot of fat. So essentially, unlike DNP that's burning every possible way that it can, with metformin, you do have anaerobic burning and you have fatty acid, fatty acid oxidation. You've cut off glucose oxidation. Now, in general, this isn't a bad thing. 
Um, in long term, it could be. So, for example, they've, they've shown if you're on metformin, you do not get hypertrophy. Your muscles do not grow. Um, repair processes are shut down. Mitochondrial biogenesis does not occur. Metformin absolutely stops that because metformin is always keeping AMPK elevated. And when that's elevated, it shuts down all these growth and repair processes. Now, the problem here is that by the time that you're old enough to make the decision to take metformin potentially for longevity, your mitochondria are already sick. And so what you've done is you've frozen them in that state of disease. So they're not getting any better and they're not getting any worse. And in mouse studies, some of the mouse studies quoted for longevity, one of them specifically gave metformin to middle-aged mice who'd been on a diet that made them sick. And they lived longer than, the, than their middle-aged peers who were also sick who didn't get metformin. And they both stayed on the same diet. And we should understand why that happened. So, of course, they, they stopped the disease process. So they lived longer. Did that mean they lived longer than they could have had they had healthy mitochondria their whole life or than they could have if they could have repaired some of that mitochondrial damage? Well, we don't know. They didn't do that study. Although we do have evidence from other studies where they took mice and instead of making a like waiting till middle age, they gave, they started giving them metformin immediately as pups. So this locked in their healthy mitochondria and then they had a longer lifespan. So again, these, these are the things you have to consider. And it's like, so you can take metformin, you can keep eating junk and you'll live longer than if you didn't take metformin. Okay. That's great. And actually there, there's not a lot of downsides when you're having this conversation. The only true longevity study that's kind of impressive with metformin is in um, C. elegans, which is a type of nematode, which is a microscopic creature. It it has extended their lifespan. Um, I have no idea how that translates into any more complex organism, and neither does anybody else really. But it, it does. So there is one very convincing long longevity study in nematodes, not in complex animals. They're, they're not very convincing. And the results they get, now you can see the power of what I've been talking about, about understanding the body in, at all levels. We know why that's the case. We know why the middle-aged mice lived longer than their peers who didn't get metformin because their damage was frozen. But we also know why they didn't live as long as younger mice who are fed a healthy diet their whole life, say a ketogenic diet, those mice will live long, or starvation. So being in a, in a fasting state actually just mimics what DNP, well, it mimics more closely what metformin does because there's not energy coming into the mitochondria. So the cell has to then AMPK, AMPK goes up. So it starts to metabolize more fat. So metformin is actually almost a chemical equivalent where you can be on a carbohydrate diet and have pseudo fat burning effects similar to a ketogenic diet and also similar to fasting. So we should understand how all those are very similar. 
why they all produce the same results. And once we do, then we can make an assessment of what's the best diet for everybody. And there's problems with all three. And the big problem is they shut down all growth and repair processes. So any of the three, all you've done is you've frozen your disease state. So you'll live longer than you would have, but you're not living as long as your potential. And that's what these mouse studies have shown. You know, the middle-aged mice that were sick that they gave metformin, they did live longer than the other ones who didn't get it while still eating a crappy diet. So these are two very important differences. And I want to get to where this important difference comes from. So knowing how mitochondria works and knowing how, or how that affects different tissues in the body, I... Knowing this about metformin, I, you know, I was kind of, I used to be on the fence about metformin and now I don't recommend it. And here's why. So with a deeper understanding of the body, you think, okay, well, what else is metformin going to do by raising AMPK levels? Well, pancreatic beta cells, these are the cells that produce insulin. They produce more insulin, the higher AMPK levels are in the cell so that the cells don't burn fat very effectively they they're they burn glucose very effectively and as they're starved of glucose ampk levels rise very high and as they do when you get that first inrush of glucose you get massive insulin production because you went from the switch was all the way off for producing insulin and it was very strongly off and then all of a sudden the switch gets turned on 100 percent because glucose came in, shut down AMPK, and you get a massive amount of insulin production. So AMPK, as you can start to see, is a really important signaling chemical throughout the body. So in beta cells, that's essentially what starts to happen. As people get sick, the beta cells do actually start to metabolize fat, and they start to lower AMPK threshold, and AMPK just does no longer rises. So when you you start to have very poor insulin control. And this is deep in the disease state. But even before that, your, your insulin production is, is starting to, to lose its efficacy. Well, so then the worry is, okay, or, or maybe the benefit, depending on how you want to look at it, is, okay, AMPK or metformin can raise AMPK, which can get pancreatic beta cells to start producing insulin again. And that turns out to be true. Metformin actually will help beta cells then recover. And we see this very often. The people who take metformin, actually blood sugar levels drop, but insulin levels do not. They start to return to normal and even high insulin levels. So metformin seems like it's this perfect drug, right? You can eat carbs. You're not going to burn them in a damaging way. You get high insulin output. Like all this is, is great. And here's the caveat. So you've probably heard of Alzheimer's disease called type 3 diabetes, which is actually just stupid. And it's stupid because we know all the mechanisms of what's causing Alzheimer's. In, in dementia, which is not Alzheimer's, it's, it's a different condition. In dementia, what we see is a loss of cellular function through aging some of this is through fatty acid depletion and this is the dha problem i was talking about before 
Uh, some of it's fatty acid depletion, so the cell membranes aren't conductive like they should be. And part of the problem is mitochondrial damage starts to become damaged, and they're, so the, the neurons aren't functioning properly anymore. This is dementia. So in dementia, you would expect metformin to have a positive response because it should freeze the damage that's there, and it should allow the cell to start generating more energy through anaerobic respiration. And it, it does mitigate the effects of dementia some. The, the problem is brain cells really only have glucose to operate on and metformin can deplete glucose levels in the brain. So it's, it's a very temporary fix in dementia. There's other better things we could do there. Now in Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's is, is created through a t totally different mechanism, which is the buildup of amyloid beta. And amyloid beta is a natural chemical in the brain that the brain needs to function but it only needs a certain amount and it's constantly producing it now amyloid beta is cleaned up or cleared out by a substance called insulin degrading enzyme now it's funny that it's insulin degrading enzyme but it cleans up amyloid beta but the name's important because it was first discovered because it's what breaks down insulin in the body once it's released so once you release insulin, it does its job, and then this insulin-degrading enzyme cleans it all up, clears it out, and the, the parts of insulin, whatever they're recycled or they're excreted, depending on how it's broken up. So insulin-degrading enzyme also breaks down other hormones as well, like glucagon it breaks down. It breaks down some other glucagon-like peptides. And it also breaks down amyloid beta. Amyloid beta has the right structure for insulin degrading enzyme to, to disintegrate. Well, if in Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's is a complete consequence of this mitochondrial damage that we do through carbohydrate ingestion. So as the body starts to resist absorbing glucose, pancreatic beta cells have to release more and more insulin that insulin can push some of the glucose into tissues that it doesn't want to go to. But now your insulin levels are really high and they stay high for a long time. An insulin degrading enzyme likes insulin more than anything else. That's why we discovered it through insulin. And it has a limited supply. So if you've done the mitochondrial, mitochondrial damage and tissue no longer wants to use glucose as fuel and insulin levels are now super elevated, they're eating up all the insulin degrading enzyme, which causes amyloid beta to no longer get broken down. And once it's, it builds up, it actually, where, where it's really terrible function is, is proteins have to unfold for, for hormone and chemical and repair. They have to unfold for the transcription process and then they fold back up. So that's what's going on with your DNA. It unfolds, splits apart, there's a transcription, then it folds back up together. Well, when the amyloid beta clogs up the works, it prevents the DNA from folding correctly, and that misfolded DNA then shuts everything down. It, a, it's no longer good. B, it no longer unfolds. And C, it mucks up the rest of the machinery. And, and there's actually a misfolded protein, uh, misfolded protein response mechanism that, that would normally destroy that. The problem is when insulin levels are high, that mechanism's turned off. So th this is what's happening with, all, with Alzheimer's. 
So guess what? So this would lead me to believe, and my theory would predict, that taking metformin should lower the risk of dementia and be able to treat its symptoms, but should increase the risk of Alzheimer's because it's increasing insulin flow without any, there's nothing to decrease it. You know, the, it's just, it's all of a sudden increasing insulin load, not for any good reason, but just because of how it functions in pancreatic beta cells. And that research is there. It does positively affect dementia, but it increases your risk of Alzheimer's. So this is like a huge differentiation. And there is actually, a, what's interesting is I found a paper, and that's why this theory is so important, this underlying theory, because I found a paper by authors who collected what they thought of as dementia, uh, papers about dementia, and they looked at the risk of metformin and the benefit, and they found 14 papers, and they lumped Alzheimer's into it at first. And then in their reporting, they're like, well, the Alzheimer's studies didn't really, we thought maybe there was something wrong with the results because they didn't say what we thought they should say, so we threw them out. <laughs> so they threw out the Alzheimer's papers. They did their analysis on the dementia papers. And then because they thought dementia and Alzheimer's were basically the same disease, their conclusion was we should be prescribing metformin for people with dementia and Alzheimer's. So they made this totally erroneous conclusion because they have no fundamental understanding of what's going on at every level in the body and how it's affecting all these other tissues. Um, so all of this was a long conversation about mitochondria, DNP, and metformin. But my final recommendation about metformin is A, you can get every single effect of metformin on a ketogenic diet or ultra-low carb diet. It, it doesn't have to be ketogenic. So an ultra low carb diet will give you every effect of metformin, including the inability to grow new tissue, the inability to, re to repair mitochondria, the inability for mitochondrial biogenesis, all of that. It has the exact same effects. Now, what it does not have are the downsides. It does not increase your risk of Alzheimer's. And in fact, that's why it reverses it. If you're on an ultra low carb diet, insulin levels are never very high, which means insulin degrading enzyme can now do its job of breaking up amyloid beta in the brain. And they've actually seen amyloid beta disappearance in the brain of Alzheimer's patients on a ketogenic diet. That's why it works for them. It works because we got rid of the poison, which was the carbohydrates, which were raising insulin levels too high for too long because the people were sick at the mitochondrial level. So I wouldn't take metformin. It's not going to make you live longer, period. As a child, even if you took it as a child, if you have children and you're raising them on a healthy diet, giving them metformin will not increase their lifespan. It will only increase your lifespan relative to other people who are as sick as you are when you started taking it and they didn't. And other problems will occur. So I absolutely do not recommend taking that. Like before I was in a gray area where I said it may not be a, a bad idea. 
Unless you know for sure you are absolutely 100% healthy and have no risk of Alzheimer's, if you know that, then you can take metformin and it's really not going to do much, especially if you're on a ketogenic diet, it's not going to do anything. It's garbage. You're just throwing money away and potentially poisoning your system because we still don't even know how it's metabolized and flushed out of the system. So there's a lot about metformin we still don't actually know. So there are potential long-term consequences. And I think that's all I need to say about metformin, DNP. And in the next the part two, so this part one, part two, I'm actually going to talk about cannabis, specifically THC and cannabinoids, because that discussion is actually this same discussion. And we can understand a lot of the properties of both of those chemicals by understanding their action within cells. And then we can make a determination of how to use them and if we should use them. Uh, so basically, I hope you listen to all of this because we're going to use a lot of this information in talking about cannabinoids and THC, which you're not going to understand without this information. So that's why I lumped a lot of these questions together because it's a long conversation to explain. So that's it for this one and look forward to part two.